This podcast is brought to you by Zeno Mueller, three-time Olympian and gold medalist. The summer is upon us, so imagine a 20-second 2K PR by the fall. Elite rowing coach of Zeno Mueller is a competitive advantage. The ERG score is the SAT of rowing, so find out what Zeno Mueller can do for you. Make sure to use coupon 4STARS, F-O-R-S-T-A-R-S, for $100 off on any program he has on his website. Zeno is an Olympian and graduate from Brown University, coached by Steve Gladstone. We'll get you right, get your 2K down, and you'll be a better athlete after his training. So make sure you tune in with Zeno and get some coaching at EliteRowingCoach.com. Unless you're a person of means, like I lived in my car for a little bit in the Aquinas parking lot. That's not a lie. Had my windows open uh, to to air it out. Maybe I would have been uh, a doctor. Who knows? Maybe I would have found motivation, but I became a doctor in rowing. We'll say that. On tonight's program, ladies and gentlemen, we have something that's going to make you sick. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Four Stars Podcast, where today we get to hear from Coach Bo Hoopman of Wisconsin Men's Rowing. Not only did Coach Hoopman row for Wisconsin, but now he's coaching there, and it's a full circle moment. Not only that, but he's also part of the U.S. national team. He has been in two Olympic Games, one in 2004, and he's been in the National Hall of Fame, both at Wisconsin. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being on. No problem. My pleasure to be here. This podcast today, I, you know, I reached out to Coach Hoop and I was like, you know, we're getting Coach Katie on the podcast. You know, he was coached by Katie and we've had a plethora of athletes uh, are going to have a plethora of athletes uh, that have been a part of the U.S. national team on the podcast. So I was like, I got to reach out to Coach Hoopman. He's coaching my boy Jonah Rain over at Wisconsin. So I guess I got to reach out. Uh, but one of the things I, I wanted to touch on is, um, you know, your entire journey with Wisconsin, right? So you got there and you you go to a sore orientation uh, and you, you get called Brow, not even your real name. So can, please enlighten the, the viewers about what this all means to you. Yeah, well, the, the Brow part was my fault because we have every, we still have guys fill out a form. Like they use their own handwriting. They do an analog form. Still, they do that. Uh, and my form, I actually, I didn't believe Coach Clark or Coach Meyer when they said that I had misspelled my own first name, but I looked at it and yeah, I did. My E looks a lot like an R. So when Coach Meyer called me in the summer of 99, uh, he said to my dad, is Brawl there? And my dad laughed and he handed the phone to me and he said, it's for you, Brow." <laughs> I was like, what? And I ended up, uh, was on the fence about trying out for the rowing team that whole summer. And then that kind of solidified me wanting to to make an effort to go down to the boathouse and try it out just because it was a memorable, funny thing that happened. And I mean, it's all, you know, circumstance and taking advantage of opportunities. And I guess I took advantage of a pretty good one there, even if I was called Brown, which now is kind of a funny joke when I see coach Meyer and coach Clark, will will bring that up every once in a while too. Do your athletes know about it too? Your current athletes about Brow? 
Uh, yeah, Coach Clark mentions it every once in a while. He likes to he likes to bring it back down to earth quite a few times during during the year. He'll remind me that I missed my final practice. I was late to my final practice my senior year. Uh, he'll remind me that I almost quit when I was a freshman. He reminds everybody about himself and his coach when he was a freshman. He still calls him quitter because <laughs> he quit for a weekend at Orange Coast College. So you also bring up the uh, the stuff that keeps you grounded to make sure that you're you're focused on uh, things that are positive, like That's... you know showing up to practice and being there, being available. So this is really interesting because Wisconsin has a history of getting on a lot of walk-ons on the team, right? And many college athletics, you know, is you always hear about stories in football about that one walk-on like, that walks onto the team and makes a huge difference. But well, their Wisconsin... walk-ons are a little different. They've actually played the sport before. Our walk-ons typically don't even know what the sport is. They look at you like, what? Sometimes they'll just turn around and walk away from you. Or sometimes their parents will say, no, my dad did that. He's like, you're not doing that. When we were at SAR, that's exactly what I said. And uh, I'm glad I didn't listen to him, I guess. But that's kind of the attitude you get with people that don't know the sport at all. I mean, I literally didn't know it was a sport when I when I first heard about it. But it was just a, it's not a weird guy, but. It's weird when you get through a line and somebody's just standing there with a clipboard asking you if you played a sport in high school. So it's interesting because not many people know about rowing before they actually start it, you know. And it's like you hear those stories about people who never heard about the sport, but they they walk onto the team or they get recruited by somebody, and their entire life changed. You know what I yeah. mean? Well, it's it's a transformational sport, so it will change you unless you're stubborn and you don't want to be changed. You want to be stubborn in a good way by being stubborn and not quitting not stubborn and i don't want to try this because that what would literally get you nowhere i mean i was uh we got a an email the other day from our department uh because i've been coaching for over 10 years now so i'm a 10-year employee not a tenured employee but i've been i've been around for 10 years so they're having like a little thing and they wanted uh, some information about you and one of the questions was, what do you like most about being a badger? And I was like, uh, everything, because my life literally revolves around this university. I wouldn't have met my wife otherwise. I wouldn't have a family otherwise. I wouldn't have a job, a career, success. I'd probably be, you know, not in Madison, obviously. I'd probably be back in Sheboygan County. So it's, you know, it's transformational in a good way. That's amazing. So, you know, when you were getting on these athletes to your team, Right. And so they're they never really heard about the sport. They're walking on there. What are some of the introduction uh, training sessions that you do with them? Like, how do you get them on the water? Do you have them on herbs before you have them on the water? Like, what's your thought process behind that all? And, and kind of how does it work for your benefit on the team? Well, first, they have to get cleared. So everybody's got to go through a physical. And that takes, you know, school starts Labor Day weekend. Our guys didn't get on the water and start training in earnest until October. So it took almost a whole month to get everybody cleared so that we could do workouts. In the meantime, you're, you can give them stuff to do on their own, or you can show them videos, run them through drills. Like they can watch drilling. They can sit in, you know, different positions on an erg, but they can't do anything uh, strenuous. So I can't test them right away until they're cleared. So it takes a while to even get, you know, where you can actually make an honest analysis of a kid if he's any good. And, like as soon as they're cleared, it's into the into the fire. 
like we'll do three erg tests in one week and they aren't hard they're shorter the shorter stuff which you know in the last part of the two-week tryout is the 2500 we don't typically do 2ks at wisconsin we do 2500 meters we call that our genetic erg test and then how they do on that the other tests and if we do any runs or anything like that that's typically how we assess if they're going to be any good like it's a lot of it is just physicality it's uh when you look at you know guys in those top boats at the collegiate level they're all six four six five for the most part they're big dudes and they're strong so you're trying to measure that strength so you want to start off obviously with somebody who's capable of pulling a decent split even if it's only for like a minute if a kid can go under 130 for a minute they're probably going to be okay at the sport and then it's just teaching them how to do it and it's a lot of drilling like i can the kids that have rode in high school that go to wisconsin that have made it through will tell you it is boring because i just drill i'm like uh a drill instructor it's basically it's just my voice and a megaphone going go and then changing the or and then when i get bored i'm like okay cox since you take over and they're just saying go for like an entire practice just rolling by fours or sixes doing pause drills just so they get the the motion right and even then it's not necessarily it's not perfect it's it takes a while so it's a lot of drilling yeah i hear you on that uh Steve Gladstone is famous for drilling. Like all he focuses on is drilling. And that's what he talked about in, in his episode with me. He's like, we we focus primarily on drilling because that's what's going to get us. And he even yeah. talked about it in a documentary that he had with uh, Nick Trojan, who does some great, not not to shout him out on the podcast, but I got to have to. He does great work. He had a um, documentary with, with Gladstone and, and Yale, and it was wonderful. And Coach Gladstone said, like, we, we focus on drilling a lot because that's what's going to get us the next step. And, yep. uh, you know, he's a very successful coach, so it has to work. It yeah, works. well, you get you get really good athletes like he gets, and they you just keep work. I worked on drilling constantly, even when I was in my seventh year run on the national team. Still drill. Like, that does not go away. If you stop drilling, bad habits can pop their head up. So you want to make sure that you're sharpening your skills at all times, no matter how much skill or how much experience you have. Like if you're if you're resistant to drilling, you're not going to go very far in this sport because it's like golf. That's probably the best analogy. You're just doing the same motion over and over again, even more so than you would if you did around a golf. So you want to be sharp on those skills. Like if you're not getting your catch in, you're literally giving up. You know, if it, you're missing two, three inches every every front end, because you're waving your blade up in the air a little bit, you're giving up that much length that whoever your opponent is and you got to assume that they're drilling because if <laughs> if you don't assume that they're better than you you're gonna you're not gonna work very hard when you're doing one thing every day like the same thing over and over again it get tedious and not only that but it's just that like, your brain has to be occupied by doing something else and yep. so i think like having a hobby or doing something like that like golf is actually really helpful and it's helped me to be honest like calm my nerves and I played golf before I even uh, started rowing. And so it's it's good that a lot of rowers take hobbies and, you know, have fun with them. Yeah. It's only better with, with your teammates, you know what I'm saying? But it also helps you appreciate, you know, other sports and other other sports that, you know, you're using fine motor skills or gross motor skills. Yeah. And it only helps. Like if you work in drilling and golf, 
going to make drilling and rowing maybe a little bit easier for you. And it helps you understand a little bit, you know, mechanics and physics and stuff like that. I want to touch on the national team um, a little later on the episode, but just kind of go like a little bit chronological order if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, so you get these walk-ons on the team, right? You're doing a lot of us drilling with them and it's a lot of work. Uh, how long does it take for you to get them set on the earth? Like getting all their form dialed in before you do all these big tests. Cause I know that a lot of uh, rolling coaches like don't remember how important it is to have a good stroke on the earth. Well, we don't have a lot of time to figure that out. And a lot of it is just putting them through the, through the test and see how they react. Nobody's going to be, Perfect. And if they are really technically sound, then that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, uh, coach Mike Tatey once said that I was, uh, I was coachable because he didn't have to coach me. And there's been a lot of athletes that have gone through our program at DW that were coachable like that, like the Grant, uh, uh, Grant and uh, Ross James, the twins, they were, they were really coachable because they could row right off the bat. They weren't necessarily as strong as you wanted them to be in the beginning of their rowing career, but they got there. They were stronger than I was when they were on the national team. Um, so just being able to pick it up quickly is a bonus, but typically they are not ready for that first 2,500. They will, their form will fall apart. They will fly and they will die at the end of the piece. I mean, that's just, even the kids that rode in high school, they haven't done a 2,500 before Usually they're going off at like, you know, 135 or 134, thinking that they're going to break eight minutes easily. And then they end up going 140 for the last 600 meters. So, you know, it, especially in the beginning of the year, you aren't expecting too much. You're just trying to work on, um, you're trying to work on getting them ready for the varsity. Cause by the springtime, they're going to be rowing with guys in the, in the top three boats and just identifying who can do it. That's, the, that's what my job is in, in the fall. And then when we go to winter training, you, start, you kind of start incorporating them with the varsity guys a little more. And speaking about those practice sessions, uh, you mentioned to me on the phone call that you have a lot of shorter practices, but they're obviously more intense at Wisconsin. Can you touch on yeah. that? They're busy student athletes. You don't want to be, you know, and there's a lot of requirements that our, our department has for student athletes. Like they have to go through a whole, um, program um, with student athlete development. So there's a little bit of time there that they have to spend uh, not on what their major is. So like typically we'll go maybe at 6.30, 6.45 in the morning and then they're out of there before their 8.50 class, like well before that. So they have enough time to, you know, get something to eat and go to class. So it's like an hour, 15 minutes tops from hands on the boat to putting it back in the rack. Um, there's practices, obviously, that we do that are longer, but not very often. Like it's a lot more. Um, we'll do, like we'll do ten miles real quick. That takes maybe an hour. That's a typical like steady state workout. But the intense stuff that we do, like you do five by five, you're doing down the course, back up, down, back up, down, with maybe like four minutes rest between for turning and getting a drink of water and stuff like that, and then they're out of there. So. But it's a little more intense, so the rate's a little higher. There's, we, we'll rate cap pieces in the beginning of the year, but by the time spring rolls around, and on the erg, we don't really rate cap anything. Like if they want to go thirty-two for an hour, go ahead. That's they can do whatever they want. We're not going to cap them in any regard because we want to see who wants to race. That's a valid statement right there. 
gotta find those racers right like you can tell it too like yeah you can you can tell when you find that a true racer that wants to go out there and be you know competitive yeah it's a sunday stroll you know what i'm saying like this is this is competitive rowing like especially at the d1 level like this is the highest that you can get besides being on the national team so yeah, when, you also think about the guys that we get they have not gotten many races under the belt if any so you're trying to find a, a who can race and then it's a whole different situation when you're lining up against somebody and you know i've seen you know different guys you know there'll be guys that are racers on the erg that aren't on the water there'll be guys that i'll see them on the erg and i'll expect them to fade and they don't that's a good surprise you know there's all different kinds of guys and you're just trying to you know figure out who's capable of being a varsity athlete that's really all we're looking for and then you fine-tune it you know get them as many strokes as possible in three years and nine months so um you don't want to waste a lot of it um doing like 20 miles of steady state or something like that. You want, I want it to be more intense because I don't want to, I don't want to be out there <laughs> for two and a half hours on the lake. I never liked being out there when I rode for that long, you know, like my ideal practice was uh quick six is what we call it at Princeton. You just go down to the bottom and you come back to the boathouse. <laughs> Those are my favorite practices. That's interesting. So you prefer like uh even on the earth, like shorter interval pieces as yeah. a like distance. Yeah. The, the longest thing we do, I mean, we, we've done, we used to do two by 10 K, which was probably the longest or 20 K we've done that before, but we don't really do that much anymore. It's more like hours of power are about it, but it's not rate capped. And we really don't do that as much as we used to anymore. There's been a lot of uh, like, I didn't realize when I was rowing that there wasn't a time restriction back when, I rode like there was no cap yeah. to how many hours you could row. And now it's 20, right? Yeah, 20 in season and eight out of season. So when we're basically when we're on the erg, you know, during the winter from Thanksgiving to spring break, it's eight hours. And then you really can't waste time because you only got eight hours and five days of practice to use. And a lot of it is us doing like circuits and stuff like that. But we do a, a bunch of testing in that time. Um, and you always feel like you're, you know, you got a little a little bit of time between Thanksgiving and Christmas to work on getting our we do 10Ks up to that point. You have a little bit of time to get them like peak 10K speed. And then they go on Thanksgiving break and they come back for like a week. And usually not a lot of guys PR in that 10 days or so, but some guys do. And then you start all over again. They get three weeks off and then you go to Texas and then you ramp up. And then the last part of Texas, you finally feel like they're at speed. And then you got another break until February. <laughs> and then you're trying to get them up to speed for spring break. And, you know, it takes about 50 practices to get, you know, in shape for hitting a good erg. So it takes a little while, especially with uh, novice guys or guys that don't have a lot of experience. Being a novice rower is one of the, it's, a, it's honestly a great experience, to be honest with you, because you're, you're learning a sport while you're all trying to maintain your, and getting in better, better shape, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, it's a, uh, very interesting journey. And I think like in high school, you think about like a novice rower being into like a varsity rower, like, you, you know, how it used to be before they started adding in all the age categories. It used to be, uh, you know, you have your first year and then after the, your first year for your first U.S. rowing race, uh, you became a varsity rower. And so it's so different now. It's like age categories and whatnot. But mm -hmm. I wanted to mention one thing that you mentioned to me. I keep on saying mentioned, but I 
it's important I say that, I guess uh, you said that you keep your stats for years, like the stats of Wisconsin, the data that Coach right. has, has been there for over 30 years. That's unreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every practice is logged. Every erg test is logged. Every SOAR is logged. We log everything because you want to see trends and you want to kind of know what to expect. Like if you have, especially if you have, like we're getting a numbers crunch. I mean, we used to be able to have 90 kids on the team. There was, you know, there used to not be a cap. Now there's a cap and the cap is getting smaller. So you have to kind of know, like I have to know as a freshman coach, as a novice coach, like, is this guy going to be successful if he's hitting these scores in the first two weeks? Like, I got to know, like, you're taking a risk on a kid that um, might not necessarily pan out, might quit, might not get any better. Um, and, you know, it seems unfair to the kids that, you know, try out that have rode before that I cut them and I'm keeping a kid that can't even break nine minutes for 2,500. But I'm doing that because he's 6'5", and he went, you know, 6'15 on his first two-minute piece of a 5 by 2 Like, that's kind of how it goes. And then if that kid pans out, that kid pans out. But we don't have as many spots for guys. So we have to be extremely picky, and we have to kind of take risks with the novices that we do get, which isn't ideal, but that's the way we have to operate now. So it's a little tricky. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. When I first heard of Wisconsin and how like you always hear about the rumor about you guys to see all the guys that don't make the basketball team in Wisco. And it's like you hear this and it's like, how come I wish. you wish? <laughs> well, it's like, how come, how come that's funny? Uh how come like, you know, recruited athletes aren't a big priority to you guys as a huge D1 school? And then you hear about your take on walk-on athletes and development. From when you first you know meet them at SOAR or whatnot, and then towards the end, like, it, it's unreal. Like you really are changing these kids' lives, and they might be even changing your life. You know what I mean, just by meeting them and whatnot. So yep. it's a it's a full moment, and uh, I think it's really interesting. And you know, it's you mentioned one thing. You said you know it's it's so rare to get everything to fall into place. Yeah, I mean, in any sport, yeah, it's so rare. It's it takes a lot of things coming together at the right time in order to maximize your result. Like you could say that about any championship team. Coach always has examples of stuff. Like the 08 crew, they won a national championship, were undefeated. The next year they had basically the entire team coming back except for their sixth man. And uh, I think Ross, or I don't know which twin it was, broke his wrist before sprints. And that set the whole season up in the air, you know. I did the same thing when I was a senior. We we only graduated two guys from our boat. Uh, and, you know, I got, I don't, it's not sick. I was stale in the beginning of the year. I told you that I was traveling a lot and I got back to school in October and I was burned out and I didn't know it. And I kept trying to, you know, push the rock up the hill and I couldn't. The rock crushed me. So I had to sit out for, you know, from basically November through to Texas. So till January. So that set everybody on the team back. If you're losing one of your best guys for any extended period of time in a championship year where you expect to be competitive, like everything matters. Like in any situation for any championship team, 
everything matters. You can even say that for, you know, non-championship teams. Everything matters for any team. Like any any little thing that sets you back or a practice you miss, like it all adds up. Like a kid sleeps in for a morning and you're doing something, especially for a novice, if a kid sleeps in in the morning and he misses, that you can't get that day back. And, you know, you think it's uh, it's additive. You know, you need to take strokes if you're a novice. And you need to take strokes, especially in our case, for any team that's any good, you need to be taking strokes together. What is your philosophy on, like, if, if an athlete doesn't show up to practice one day, varsity or novice? If it's in the trial period, I cut them. They're done. Doesn't matter. Because um, I have to make an assessment in two weeks. And I mean, it, it, the morning, the first morning practice, I always get somebody. No matter if it's like the experienced group of rowers or the novice group of rowers. Like you're looking for guys that are going to take it seriously. And you want them to, you know, be there. Which isn't a great thing because coach tells a story about Matt Smith, his first morning practice. And I think he reminds Coach Smith about this all the time that he missed his first morning practice. So it's not it, it might not be the best thing to do, but he was you know he was going to be on the team anyway. Any kid that we bring in that road in high school uh, that we've recruited gets to stay on the team no matter what. But I don't want them missing practice no matter what. And if like if any of those recruits mess up, it's a lot of hills for all of us. <laughs> so you do a lot of like CrossFit training on the team as well. It's not just on the ergs and. Also on the water. The winter gets winter gets super boring. It's cold. It's dark. It's it's miserable. So we break it up quite a bit. We do a lot of interval training on uh, with just body weight interval training, and we'll run hills in the beginning of the year with the big novice group that we get that comes out. We run quite a bit because everybody can run for the most part. Everybody knows how to run, uh, and that's a good way to get fitness. And we test on that occasionally like a six mile run, a three mile run, a 4.2 mile run, stuff like that. Different runs that we've got around the campus area. It's active rest. I call it when we do the body weight circuits because <laughs> they'll need, a, they do need a break occasionally from the erg uh, or else you'll just fry them doing intensity stuff all the time. I think a lot of times people forget that when you start something like this, it's a never ending journey. Like you're not going to ever leave the sport you're always going to be a part of it. And it's like you mentioned to me, I, you know, you coming back to coach at Wisconsin was like, it's been a great thing for you. Like you really, like you met your wife there, like your entire life kind of revolves around that. I mean, granted, you were born in the state of Wisconsin. So Wisconsin, the main school. Every opportunity that I got to make the right decision for the most part was, you know, it was an opportunity that I took like. If I had just listened to my dad the first day I met Coach Meyer and was like, yeah, you're right. I probably should just focus on school. Who knows where I'd be? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even want to know. <laughs> I probably honestly would have failed out of school. As, Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a bad student, but I'm a lazy dude. I'm very, I'm very lazy if I'm not motivated to do something. Rowan kept you in check. Yes, it did. It gave me something to look forward to, even if it was at 6.30 in the morning. I could go walk down to the boathouse with my discman in my ears, walk down the lakeshore path to practice, uh, you know, do that twice a day and get a workout in. It makes you uh, healthy, you know, physically and mentally, keeps you in check. 
gives you a great group of friends to hang out with. Still good friends with everybody that I've ever rode with. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even honestly want to know what I would have done. I don't know where I would have lived my sophomore year. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I would have been uh, a doctor. Who knows? Maybe I would have found motivation, but I became a doctor in rowing. We'll say that. That's uh, maybe the first one of the podcast. Uh, Coach <laughs> Bo Hoopman, doctor of rowing. I'm gonna- That's not my original take. That's Coach Clark. Yeah, you got your PhD in rowing. So that's he he's, he tells me that all the time because you know we're both of us are very we we uh, we make fun of ourselves quite a bit because he's like what have I ever done? But he'll remind me every once in a while. You got a PhD in rowing, which that's is true. Talks, too. That's how he talks. Honestly, I heard a he, yeah he's, he's uh, like everybody's got a good Coach Clark impression. Got to have him on the episode, Coach Clark. Listen to this. Oh, he's he'll talk your he'll talk your ear off. He is uh, as much as he says he doesn't like talking and he's antisocial. He will. He's really good at it. He's one of the best uh, orders I've ever heard. That's amazing. I got to have him on. Well, uh, everyone, hopefully we can expect Coach Clark on the podcast down the line. Uh, but going back to you, right? Because your journey is is again, it's, it's been an unreal. Uh, you were the first. University of Wisconsin rowed to everyone a gold medal. That's a huge accomplishment. First male. I wasn't the first. Okay. Rower. I think uh, the women had uh, a couple. I can't think of who it was, but I, I was the first male to get a gold medal. But there was a bunch of guys that got medals at at the Olympics. Now, right. One guy, uh, Espy, was he went to four Olympics, so he he's a he's an Ironman. I think he still coaches too. I think he coaches at uh, UTC Chattanooga. Go Mox. That's where my buddy Dan Beery went to school. And that's really? coach. Yeah. The six man, the guy that sat behind me in 04. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, he was a mock. So you, you finish Wisconsin, you have a great career there. And then you end up going and you're a part of the national team throughout uh, college. And then you end up going and, you know, doing in after that, right? So that you're, that's your job as being on the national team. Uh, and then, you know, you get involved there. You get invites to U23s. You're doing your world championship stuff, which you went to Pan Ams and whatnot. You did great stuff there. But I'm curious to kind of see, you know, how your life turned around when you became a full-time rower on the national team. Like, that is – that's the highest of highs you can get in the sport, and you are part of that, and you won a gold medal in 2004. So please just – you got to touch on that. Well, it's – you know, it's a humbling journey because – you got to kind of check yourself when you first start out because you're unless you're a person of means like i lived in my car for a little bit in the aquinas parking lot that's not a lie uh had my windows open uh to to air it out and eventually i did get to stay at uh, greg hughes's house he let me house sit but you gotta you gotta be willing to do what's necessary to make it a successful journey. So like you have to check yourself. Like if you think you're just going to be living in a hotel and somebody's going to chauffeur you to practice every day and, you know, hand you a towel when you're sweating, it's not, you're on your own for the most part. I had great uh, support from my, my mother and my father. That was the bank of Debbie was open during that period of my life. So uh, they supported me uh, financially until I could get my feet on the ground. Because you can get a job while you're on the national team. I'm of the sound mind that if you're doing more than two things, 
you're probably not going to be very good at doing, you know, three things full time. Like you can't add a lot of things. If you're trying to be, you know, a world-class athlete and trying to be like a world-class engineer or, or uh world, I worked at a dog rescue and a, I worked at a liquor store <laughs> and all those were from friends on the team that got me jobs because I was kind of bored during the day. But like at some point you got to check that too. Because the number one goal has to be the number one goal. You know, if you're focusing on other things or other things are getting in the way, what is the point of being out there? What's the point of putting your twenties on hold to do something if you're going to be, you know, not completely focused on it, those sacrifices, you know, they can pay off and, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out, but like you just, you know, trying to make the best move. You're trying to make, take, you know, take the best opportunity you can um, to do something. So you gotta be willing to do whatever you can to make it a successful uh, journey. That's the best bit of advice I could give anybody that, wants to do that. I know the system is different now. I mean, it's not really a centralized camp system, at least for the guys, as far as I know, but there's still like training air, like training, like you can train at CTC or something like that, or like a Penny C or you could train at a club year round. But like once the boat needs to be made, you have to be a hundred percent like, well, I can't do this because I got a, an internship or uh, I got a job interview or going to conflict with practice so can we reschedule you can't <laughs> no like yeah it's got to be a priority but you sign yourself up for the national team it's 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 full of sim. Like you cannot back down from a challenge it's you sign up for it you got to be there and i think that's what says a lot about the actual team itself there's no excuses being you know accepted yeah in those pre-olympic years too like in all three we had like 30 really good rowers at at uh at chula vista like a lot of good rowers like guys that were world champions guys that were you know college champions ira champions you know all in the same area and you're vying for what 14 seats so it's you know you got to be into it and that's an understatement that's an understatement you got to yeah. do really somebody, somebody else is going to be somebody else is going to take it super seriously. You always got to think that way. Like no matter where you are, like if you're on the national team, you got to be thinking that somebody from a different country is, is maximizing. They're doing something that you aren't, they're training harder or they're, you know, they're not missing practice ever. So you got to think that way. You got to think that your competitive, your competition is taking every advantage that it can get. 100%. Now this what you just mentioned kind of brought me to Kobe Bryant for some reason. I don't know what what what, what was, but it did. And uh, you know, there, you see these documentary clips of Kobe where he ends up sh- waking up before all the athletes come back from uh, come back from the bars. So as the, all the athletes are coming back from the bars, heading up to the room to go to sleep, he's already waking up, going to the gym to train. Any athlete that you can think of that kind of reminded you of that, of just that resilience to just hustle? The the great thing about the group that we had in 04 and 08 is nobody was like, like super obsessive, you know, about being like, they weren't waking up and coming down to the boathouse two hours beforehand. That's for basketball. Yeah, I could see it. 
but for rowing, like you're going as hard as you can for the entire, like you're, uh, yeah, you're going as hard as you can for the entire practice every time. Because if you take a stroke off, even if it's like steady state and you're not completely focused and you're not squeezing as hard as you can, somebody else is going to. So, And you're always trying to hit a split. So for the rowing guys, I would say everybody was like 100% all in every practice. Like there was 100% focus. Everybody was always focused on the goal of making whatever boat they were in go faster. Outside of practice, it was a little bit more mellow, you know, because you have to have that turn it on, turn it off mentality because it's intense. Like you're, you're talking about four years of your life for literally five minutes and 20 seconds of racing, essentially. I mean, there might be heats and reps, but like it all comes down to how you execute in the final. So you're always looking at that goal and it's, there's a lot of intensity involved in that. So when you're at, like, we have a, a saying at the Porter Boathouse, at least I do with the freshmen, when you walk up those stairs, you're focused on rowing. When you walk down those stairs, you can focus on school. You can focus on whatever else you need to to keep your, your mind in the right place. But, like, when you're at the boathouse, you got to be focused. And that's kind of how it was on the national team. Like, everybody was focused when they were there. And, you, yeah, you show up. You know, you're not showing up five minutes before you're boating, but you're not showing up an hour and a half before and sitting in the tank for an hour, unless you really need to work on something. And then I can see it. But like there was a definite, you know, there was like a faucet. They would turn it on when they, when we were boated and we were at the boathouse. And then once practice is over, you just decompress, go eat, go relax and get ready for the next practice because the next practice is coming. I don't know if basketball players practice three times a day. Maybe they do. I don't know. But, I mean, for di it's, you know, the saying different strokes for different folks. It's different in basketball than it is in, in rowing. Ball sports are a little different. I, I married a ball sport athlete, and I, and I know her mentality. She would be one of those people that was at the gym working on, you know, setting a ball. She played volleyball. But uh, I was not one of those people that was – you know, there an hour and a half before I'd be there 20 minutes before if I had to tank. Um, you know, you have this huge power five conference school, Wisconsin, and the facilities that you have with all your athletes. So you're able to use, right, like the, the football gym or, or what are you able to use like weight training and whatnot? Because you, I mean, Wisconsin is a very, you know, well-funded school in terms of like athletics. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah. And they're spending more and more on facilities, you know, every year, uh, especially for the, I mean, we'll probably get a renovation at some point for the boathouse. It's relatively new. It's 2004 and it's functional. Like it's huge. We don't really need to go. Like we used to go to the field house to do uh, winter training. We don't need to do that anymore. There's plenty of room at the boathouse to have all the athletes from all the teams working out in the Eric base. There's a ton of square footage on the uh, third floor. Um, but we'll go other places. To, I know that we can utilize the the uh, the weight training room at the stadium if we want to. We the men typically don't because what we do we can do in a garage, so we just do it in the bays downstairs. Um, that way you're at a central location all the time. You're not scooting around everywhere. And we like to have the flexibility of being able to row instead of lift if the water's good or if the water's not frozen. You know. <laughs> um, so everything in our program can revolve 
around workouts at the boathouse. Like we can use other facilities. You just got to ask. And it, the great thing about UW is that everything as far as operations is paid for by the university. Like we don't have to raise money to, to buy a new boat or to raise money to pay coach Clark's salary or raise money to make sure that we can go on our Texas training trip. That's all in the budget for what we do. So it's super well-funded and provided for and supported by our athletic department. That's amazing. Which so is nice. You get that peace of mind that, yeah. uh, you can do whatever you need to do to make sure the guys are ready. Right. I touched on it a little bit yesterday with coach Porter from Yale about Stanford, you know, when they, uh, lost funding and whatnot. And it really was a bummer. Yeah. Uh, has that ever been like a, a thought from the universe that you've gotten a vibe on or anything like that? Well, I mean, I'm sure any program at any D one school, once COVID hit was wondering, are we going to be around like when other programs and uh, departments from other colleges start cutting sports that pops in everybody's head when, uh, you know, money is involved and there's no butts in seats at, especially at like power five conference schools. So it crossed everybody's mind at our, at our boathouse. Um, we have a lot of, uh, um, we have a lot of programs, a lot of teams at the university. And I know back in the 90s, like early 90s, maybe rowing was on the block with baseball and baseball ended up getting cut. And I actually met one of the guys that played baseball. He's actually a, a big donor to the UW. The, our student athlete performance center is named after him. And he doesn't have a sport at the UW, but he's still, you know, helping as much as he can and contributing. And this is my, like, I don't have a lot of money, so I donate my time and donate my PhD knowledge, I guess, because I, I just want guys to have the same opportunity that I had and experience the stuff that I did. Um, but yeah, anytime there's a question, you just, you know, we have, it's the oldest program at the UW which kind of helps. We have a huge alumni base and a lot of them donate money to the university. So um, that helps when, you know, that stuff's called into question because we are, we're, you know, personnel wise, we're a big sport. There's a lot of people that have gone through the program. Head coach of Wisconsin women's rowing. She's stepped down. Anymore. Yeah. She stepped down this year. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you? Cause the uh, same thing with coach Porter and Gladstone. I hate to see her go because she's been there as long as I've been coaching. I mean, we didn't overlap when I rode, but she was there in 2005. So she's been there for a long time and that's a lot of stability. And, you know, you, you get to know the other coaching staff and you get along with them. That's the most important thing is like, we got along really well. Like we would communicate really well because you're sharing a lake, you're sharing a course, uh, you're sharing facilities, which a lot of programs, you know, you're not necessarily doing that. And you're sharing practice times for the most part, because everybody wants to go in the same block of time. Um, so like not knowing who the coach is, it's, you know, it's tricky. It's a little scary because, I mean, we do things a certain way. And, you know, the lake ultimately decides if you can row on it, you know. <laughs> You don't want to be going out there in a northeast wind or else you're going to end up upside down. And just 
having to, you know, you don't want to be condescending with a new coach or anything like that, but you also don't want to babysit them, you know? So, and we never had to do any of that stuff with, with Dee because she knew exactly what she was doing and she was really successful at her job for a really long time. You know, so I'm going to miss her for mm-hmm. sure. And, I'm, and, you know, if there's a staff changeover, I'm going to miss all those coaches as well, even though I don't talk very much in the office, kind of a, just the dude over in the corner. Uh, but like being able to have, a, you know, a, a, you know, cohesive unit at the boathouse where everybody was on the same page and you felt like you could talk to them. It's, it's, it's honestly a, a, like one of the more positive things about, about coaching there is you didn't really have to worry about stepping on anybody's toes or like feeling like you're putting somebody out by asking them, you know, a question or, or a request, like, can we use the top, the top thousand of the course to do pieces? Can we go the wrong way on the course? Like some coaches would absolutely say, no, absolutely not. Safety is the most important thing when you're on the water and, you know, instructing a new coaching staff on, you know, how the lake reacts and uh, understanding weather and stuff like that and weather patterns you don't want to, I mean, like I said, you don't want to preach at them, but you also want to be safe because it ultimately if something happens. It's everybody at the boathouse is responsible. So you just like having that little bit of uncertainty is it's not frightening, but I just like things, uh, you know, just like to go back to the boathouse and have it be the way it was the day before. But that's everything changes eventually. And, you know, it will on the men's team too eventually. So. You just hope that we make the right decision as a department, hire somebody that uh, continues with BB started. Right. What's been like the most important thing that you've learned from her? I'd say patience with your athletes. Like she's super patient with her athletes. She doesn't really flip out on, I will, I'm not as bad as I used to be. Like guys on the, on, uh, that I've ever rode with know that I can kind of go off a little bit. I, I'm kind of grumpy occasionally. And I will take that out on my athletes. It like if they do something stupid or like if a drill's not working, I can lose my temper a little bit. But she's always had a very calm voice with her with her crews, and like everything, they know exact. They knew exactly what to expect um, every practice. I mean, that's also one thing that she did a lot better than we do. Is everything is, you know, is is it's not regimented, but they know where they're going to be and they know what they're going to be doing that day. A lot of the times, like we'll go into the community room to start a practice and we're thinking about what to do like 10 minutes before, because we, we always go off of what the water gives us, you know? Um, yeah. You, you keep on mentioning like what the water gives you. It's so interesting. Well, that's, you think about if you're going to be taking strokes, especially on the water, the best available, the uh, best ability that the water can have is availability, right? So if the water is available to row, you want to take advantage of it. But like, even if there's a wind, like we won't mess around usually with the Northeast unless you can get over to the other side of the lake, but we can always go somewhere else on the lake. Um, and sometimes that is brought up 30 minutes before practice starts. So guys have to go get their cars so they can drive to the other side of the lake or, you know, or sometimes, you know, right before we're going to go out, a big old squall comes up and says, no, thanks. You're not going out today. So they like our guys know to be flexible like that. But sometimes I can see how you're expecting one thing to happen 
and then you know we throw a curveball at you and we're going to go for a run or something so get your shoes on that sometimes can be a little annoying whereas the women knew that a lot of you know every other day in the afternoon they would have a lift for the most part as, as far as i understood i didn't really meddle in their training plan at all so but i knew that they lifted quite a bit on a consistent basis and our guys just they they just did what we what we told them they were doing that day which is you're rowing if we can row because we need to take as many strokes as possible the last thing i i wanted to touch on uh obviously when you won in 04 you're with all these guys that you've been with for many years what were some of the emotions that you were feeling after the race uh i mean you just won an olympic gold medal i mean that's unmatched i mean a lot of it is relief to be honest with you it's a huge weight because you think about you know the gravity of the situation how much a lot of those guys like chris aarons he'd won how many worlds in a row he came back out of retirement to do this he sacrificed a lot of stuff to be in that boat or volt same thing he he had the same situation and chip so it's a huge relief, I know, for those guys and for us younger guys um, being in that boat because, you know, for the most part, other than, you know, the little bit of success that we had in under 23s and, you know, Pan Ams and stuff like that and a couple NSRs, like, we were unproven. Like, we weren't in that boat in 97, 98, 99. So, I mean, it's a huge relief to know that your work paid off and it's a huge relief. I know for Wyatt, it was a huge relief to get through that race without catching a crab. <laughs> during the uh, during the final, a lot of us were thinking that because we had a bit of open water, which is a lot in, you know, in, in I don't know, want to call it professional rowing, but, you know, rowing at the highest level, you got a length and an eighth. That's quite a bit of margin to make up. It's like three seconds, which is hard to do. Um, so a lot of it is just, don't mess up. Don't mess up every stroke. The relief from that angle too. hundred percent. Wow. I mean, I, I think it's a lot of people's dreams to go and win a gold medal at the Olympics, you know, or leaving just being there and being there is one of a kind, you know, oh, yeah. in 2028, it's in LA and the course is going to be 1500 meters. That's going to be awesome. It's just so different. But I wish that like, have you ever been? Have you ever been to Canadian Henley? They got the Dash event on Saturday. That is by far my favorite event because it's like the shorter stuff. Yeah, my brother went. So this is a good story. My brother went to the 04 games. He went with his now. Well, she's his wife now. Obviously, they've been married forever, but they were dating at the time, and they went to Europe. They did like a little tour thing. What a whatever the tour thing they do, and they start in England, and they make their way all the way through Europe. And he ended up in Athens and met my mom there. And he was at, I mean, they saw the heat. We won the heat. He's just sitting there in the stands, probably drinking beer. And at the, after the final was over, he came up to me and he's like, you know, I've been here for two and a half weeks. And I spent all this time to watch you row for like 30 seconds. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but it was worth it, right? He's like, sure, I guess. <laughs> Because there's not a lot to see, you know. You're not riding a train along the side of the course and watching every stroke. It's see, you know, back then it was like a blurry old, uh, you know, giant TV screen that they could watch. But you're not seeing anything until the end. 
That's why I wish they'd have like swimming different, you know, different lengths, different events. And I understand it's a lot of, you know, logistical issues having to move like a starting gate into the middle of the course or whatever. But it would be a lot more exciting if we had like a 500, a thousand, a 1500, a 2K, stuff like that. If you got a 2K course, you might as well just crack it down every 500 and see, you know, who's the fastest, you know, starting crew for 500 meters. You get a really tight race. It would be, it would be absolutely the, the, the entire, you know, the dynamic of the race would change. Because you wouldn't be like waiting for somebody else to move. It would be 100% a move. So it would be a lot more exciting to watch. Probably a lot more guys throwing their backs out. But yeah, I was about to say. It's up in the upper 50s probably for the start. Right. But it would be exciting. So I'm all for whatever they got to do to keep the sport, you know, around. I know. Because it's kind of shrinking a little bit. So Yeah. Yeah. We got to make sure it's uh, still alive. But so, if it makes it more exciting, that's a positive thing. You know, 1,500 meters is 1,500 meters. You're still, for the most part, going to find out who's the best crew. Um, oh, for sure. I mean, they do it in Scholastic and for the youth, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's still around right now, so. But, you know, the sport is super entrenched in, you know, it's its ways. And, you know, a lot of people probably be upset that it's not 2,000 meters. But I say, you know, change for the better. You know, maybe it'll make it, you know, more exciting and more people will watch it and, it turns out to be a positive thing because the races will be tighter because you're changing your strategy during the race. Yeah. You know, what you would do in a 2K compared to a 1500. Right. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been in this, what's called a slalom race? It's like a zigzag course. You ever heard of that? I've been in a head race. I mean, and I've had coxswains that kind of steer all over the place, but not a, oh, not a, a slalom course. Oh, okay, coach. Sounds right. like fun, though. You probably tip out on one side and over to the other. Yeah, it was uh, your coxswain leaning every time they want to turn. Yeah, it was. I did it one time in uh, Marina del Rey. It was the craziest race I've ever been. We did a cox quad in, it's like my novice here, a cox quad in a slalom race. We were just going like doing zigzags. It was the weirdest thing. It was meant for like small boats and whatnot. You're you're essentially telling them to power down on port side and power up on starboard like every five, 10 meters or so to try to weave around the course. That's pretty cool. It was, it was unreal. Uh, But, Going into my next last two topics, uh, the first one is going to be about uh, men's rowing being an IRA sport, and then the also going and uh, having your relationship with Coach Mike Tatey. So we'll start off with, uh, we'll do Coach Mike Tatey. All right. So uh, Tatey had his time, you know, coaching for the U.S. team, coaching at Cal, and uh, now he's just doing a lot of work over at California Rowing Club in Oakland. So when when he became or when he was the coach when you were there, uh, you know, having him as a coach and that leader of the team, I'm curious to kind of know your your experiences with him and and whatnot because everyone has a different story. I I always hear it from every person he's been with. Everyone has different stories, so yeah, you know, I want to know yours. I mean the the first thing that Coach Clark told me when I you know tried out my first year is just. Try to not ignore him, listen to him, but don't react to what, because he's going to test you at all times. He needs to, like, he needed to know if you really wanted to be there at all times. Because, like, if you're not the guy, he's got to find somebody that is the guy. So, like, if you, and I've had this discussion with one of my close friends, Dan Walsh, like, we have totally different personalities. And his personality didn't really mesh with Mike's. And he realizes that now that like, if he'd just been a little bit more like me, cause I, 
am probably my wife will tell you too. I'm like the most indifferent, insufferable, boring, <laughs> you know, dude on the face of the planet. Like a lot of, and I get that from my dad because you think I don't react to things. He was even more non-reactive to anything. So like I can be in a situation that might make other people uncomfortable and I don't care. You know, I'll just, you got a job to do, do it. That's exactly what my father would have told me. And, you know, anything that affects that job, don't do it. So like if me overreacting to something that Mike said to me, you know, the first day that I was in a practice with them, if I overreacted and like, you know, lashed out or, you know, just gave up or cowered or did something other than what I did, like if I just stopped drawing hard, I would have been gone. So you have to adjust to the situation because I like I've had not very many coaches in my life. I've had maybe five like serious, like long-term coaches, not like somebody coaching you for two weeks or whatever. So, and everybody had a different style and you just have to adapt to it and adjust to it. And then, you know, when you gain that trust, then the coach will adapt to you and <laughs> coach, uh, I mean, Mike, he would never want me to call him coach Tatey. Mike, adjusted to our boat eventually in 04 like he would let us he trusted enough that he would let us do what we needed to do and he wouldn't flip out <laughs> you know because <laughs> normally if if you don't do a full warm-up right before the final of the olympics if you don't do a full warm-up and you're not successful you should it's gonna hit the fan like and we didn't do a full warm-up because it was 100 degrees that day but trust in the in the boat and you know you trust your coach to make the right decisions and if he trusts you and you know what you're doing and it works out it's a good thing everybody's friends everybody's buddies you know and the people that don't necessarily have a good experience with mike i get it i understand it um but that was never the case with me i mean i just knew what to expect kind of yeah i hear what you're saying you ever hear that quote like strength in numbers Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, that's, uh, that's the Wisconsin way. The, really? The more numbers that we have, the more athletes that you have, the more guys that are going to be good. You know, it's just statistical. It's, uh, yeah, strength in numbers. Yeah. I love that quote. I think it's a, a very powerful statement to the, uh, the power of uh, human life being able to be surrounded by one another. You know, it's like everyone's. Well, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, even in college, and on the net, you're all focusing on one goal. And there is strength in, in numbers like that. But like you also don't want to like you don't want a mutiny either when you're in an Olympic year. Like you don't want stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, and you can understand both sides of it. But I trusted his training plan. And, you know, it never really bothered me if if he was, you know, super aggro with something I did. I mean, it's just about how you react because like and I understand where it's coming from because you need to know how somebody's going to react in a situation that's uncomfortable. Like if you're, you know, neck and neck with another team or something like that, and uh, you need an extra gear or something. I mean, it can't come down to you cowering, you know? So. I hear you saying. Yeah, that's, that's great. 
powerful stuff. Our last topic, I want to teach your time, and I got, you know, your whole family and whatnot. Uh, I'm upstairs watching We Bear Bears. It's all okay. good. Okay. Uh, the movie, though, not the TV show. Right. Uh, so, obviously, men's rowing is not a NCAA sport, and there's we talked a little bit about the thought of rowing being cut from, from uh, universities because of it and whatnot. And there's this long talk about, you know, getting it NCAA. You know, a lot of coaches were skeptical because of, like, you know, the history of rowing, of the tradition of, you know, the tanks after you win a race or you lose a race, you trade him. Can't do that with NCAA. Yeah. It's like, would you rather rowing be an NCAA sport or keep it the way that it is with IRA? Well, the uh, ironic thing is football is not an NCAA sport. It's not an NCAA championship that they're vying for at the end of the year. It's a BCS championship. So, and I have this discussion with coach all the time. And the the funny part is like, by the time we become NCAA, the NCAA is going to probably dissolve, to be completely honest with you. So? Yeah, I do. Wow. And a lot, there's so much, you know, it's not the Wild West, especially for rowing right now, but, you know, maybe it kind of is. Maybe there's programs using name image likeness to recruit athletes. I don't know. Maybe. We thought about it, like in some capacity, that's, you know, stuff like that 20 years ago was unheard of. You would like, we got in trouble as an institution for uh, a shoe store on the other side of Madison, giving a discount to basically anybody that wanted it. Like you could say, it didn't matter. You could have said you were a nurse at the UW and they would have given you a discount. But since they were saying like guys were dropping, I'm a UW athlete. Can I have a discount? We got a, a violation for that. That, has been completely swept under the rug. And now it's ridiculous in the NIL age that anybody got in trouble for that. Like, if you think about it, because now you got like car companies and Pepsi sponsoring athletes and guys are on billboards. It, it, it's, it doesn't matter. It's a social construct that some, you know, in the name of amateur athletics, somebody in a suit decided was super important to them, not to the athlete. So I just want to see the sport survive because like, and I tell this to any novice that I'm recruiting at SOAR, like this is the only opportunity you're ever going to have to be a D1 athlete and get a varsity letter in a sport at the UW. And for a lot of kids from Wisconsin, that's a pretty big deal because it represents a lot of work. Like you're on the same level as JJ Watt if you get a letter jacket. That to a lot of kids is pretty appealing. So like this sport is, it's simple. Like it's not easy, but it's really simple to figure it out and become successful at it. You just gotta be stubborn. You gotta come to practice every day. You gotta work hard. You gotta change who you are as a person and good things will happen. Even if you're in the the varsity four IRAs, good things will happen if you make it. So if you make it all four years, that is like coach calls it. You're a card carrying member. Like you can come back anytime you want. You make it four years. You're you're a team member for life. That's and that's a big deal to a lot of guys because you only graduate like, you know, a dozen guys tops in a class every year out of like 130 that show up the first day out of 8000 kids that you know, are admitted to our school. It's the only opportunity. So like the NCAA discussion for me, I mean, 
Yeah, you'd like some legitimacy because it's hard to explain to a kid that, you know, play, has played basketball his entire life that uh, what rowing is and, you know, uh, you know, what the reward for it is or do I get a scholarship or, you know, and you got to let them down softly. But like if it's important to you and you want to be an athlete, this is the only avenue, um, you know, and most of those guys that, you know, the novice guys that we recruit can play like at a D3 school or something like that. Um, but like, this is the only opportunity you're going to get to, you know, wear a motion W and represent the school in a D1 institution. So it's, it's, yeah, the NCAA thing I think is, I would like it, but you know, it's going to be like too little too late as far as I'm concerned, just with how everything's going now, like everything is starting to be deregulated and, you know, guys are just getting money thrown at them at the, at the uh, revenue sports. So, I mean, like, we just want to we want to survive this that's about it and be competitive in in the ira or whatever it ends up being called yeah because it didn't used to be called the ira it used to be called like the pregnant what it used to be called it used to be called something else the ira or like your, the national championship it used to be called something else right? yeah probably it's probably been renamed a bunch of times but it's all still the same it's all just a sport that doesn't want to be modernized but it doesn't really need to be. It's like I said, it's a super simple sport. Uh, the only thing that's being modernized about it is how we go about recruiting athletes, you know. Um, but time's still the same at the IRA every year. Year 530, you're going to be in it. That does not change. That hasn't changed for 30 years. So that's always the goal of anybody. That's like... If I spend my time worrying about NCAA, like that's, you know, you know, not seeing the forest from the trees, like I'm worried about getting, you know, guys that were just, you know, two months ago, probably playing uh, ultimate Frisbee, trying to turn them into guys that can compete with, uh, you know, dudes that have been to several world championships or under 23s or junior world championships. So I don't have a lot of time to think about the NCAA thing other than, you know, what's going on with our department. Uh, that's, you know, the only thing that we'd really focus on is how it changes our department. But it ain't going to change the sport <laughs> until yeah. it happens. We'll see. I just but, wanted to say, Coach, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. You know, it really has. And I'd love to have you on in the future if you're interested in doing that. Uh, but in sure. Coach Clark, if he's interested, maybe we do like a little duo podcast, you and Coach Clark. Uh, he's gonna need somebody to turn on the Zoom call for him. So uh, it's okay. Well, I I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day, everyone. This is another episode of the Four Stars Podcast featuring Coach Bo Hoopman. Thank you so much, Coach. Appreciate your time. No problem. My pleasure. Good talking to you, Hudson.